Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. We are in verse 13. We are largely going to be focusing on chapter 53, which is one of the most popular, well-known, powerful passages in all of Isaiah and the Old Testament. This is the famous passage that uses the phrase, by his stripes we are healed. This is the phrase that talks about how the Messiah is going to be crucified and rejected by men and he was going to be mocked and humiliated, but he would be exalted. All of that is loaded into this phrase. In the New Testament, it is either referred to or quoted over 41 times, more than any other chapter in the entire Old Testament. This is a big deal. But as we begin, I want to share these thoughts to lead you to the fill in the blank. What I want to share with you is that there are some stories in this world that are fascinating because they come up with a cool message. Then there are stories that are fascinating because they have a cool message and they're true. Then there are messages that impact a huge amount of the world. And then there are stories that impact you. The story we are about to go through does all those things. But as the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you says, the cross was not just a story. The cross is not just a story. When you hear the phrase story, you think in a galaxy far, far away. You think Narnia. This is neither one of those. This is history. And it's not just history. It is super history. It is something, an event that changed both nature and supernature. It changed the past, the present, and the future. It alters your life specifically. It changed all things that we can see and all things that we can't see. It changed the world and the underworld. It altered everything. All of that is loaded into an event, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That is what we are going to talk about today. But to make it even more powerful and more electric, it was written down and God called his shots around 700 BC, 700 years before it ever occurred. It is amazing when you can begin to say in detail what is going to happen because you as God are writing the story, orchestrating the events, so they happen in line and in shocking detail hundreds of years before it ever occurs. All skeptics will agree that approximately 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth lived and died on a cross. We can argue about everything else. We can argue about whether or not he stayed dead. We can argue about what he said he was. We can argue about who he really was. But everyone agrees that this man showed up and our world has never been the same. The Bible is about to tell you all the deeper things below that story. It begins in 52:13. Behold. God is speaking. Behold means God is about to give you a word that you need to know and you need to stop everything else in your mind, minimize all distractions and lock in on what he is about to say. And he says, "Behold my servant." I've shared with you throughout the weeks 
and months that the term servant in the Bible means God's agent on earth carrying out his will, whoever that is, whatever that is. This time, it's the Messiah. When we think of the suffering servant of God, when we think of the mighty Messiah, we are speaking of Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant. In other words, I'm about to tell you about the one that will come, the righteous one, the anointed one. My son will come into the world. And it's going to come in a way that you do not understand. There will be excitement and glory and there will be dark times of dismay. So let me tell you what he's like. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. What is wise in the eyes of God? But obedience. Finally, someone's going to come in and be the servant that is going to do the will of the father and not argue, not disagree, not disobey. That when Adam was called to be a servant and he failed, when Israel was called to be the servant and they failed, when Cyrus was called to be the servant and he didn't even know what he was doing. Now, suddenly the son of God shows up as a servant and does everything right. The power of obedience is extraordinary. If every single one of us did exactly what the father said when the father said it if we lived in obedience we would be the righteous people and the world would be rocked so much of our problem and so much of the watering down of our lives and testimony is because we just don't obey god has told us so much And shockingly, we have the gall to say we will consider it. Who are we to consider the words of God? Our response at all times should be as it was in Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Every time. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be, when all this is said and done, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Well, that's a big deal to a Jew. You go, why? Did you read chapter 6? In chapter 6, Isaiah is taken in a vision to the throne room of heaven where he sees God himself and he says, Behold, I saw the Lord, what? High and lifted up. He used the exact same phrase of God himself to describe the servant. Therefore, we know he's not talking about any mere man. He is talking about God himself. Yet, automatically, it goes from high and exalted to death and humiliation, which is not appropriate for God. And what you see is in one passage, the God-man. Fully God, fully man, the incarnation of God here on earth. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. But before we ever get to that, here's what it'll look like. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The word astonished there is not an impressive astonishment. It is repulsion. It is the, hey, we're walking along the street and we see a gnarly roadkill. And everyone goes, whoa! And you just kind of look away. That attitude right there is what people will feel when a certain process is completed about the Messiah. What process are we talking about? 
I would say it probably has two forms. If you have ever seen somebody in absolute agony and pain, their face twists and they don't look like themselves. Something's different because an emotional torment is twisting out their body. That is true of Jesus. However, he also had physical damage. I don't want to go on too long on that because we've probably driven that into your head for a long time. But let me merely mention this. Jesus was slapped, spit on, beaten, hit with clubs, put the crown of thorns on his head, punched with fists, lashed on the back, 39 lashes. He was scourged in the most violent way. And when you begin to strike somebody with large nails into their head and you begin to pound it down, it's going to create swelling. By the time Jesus Christ, who had carried a crossbeam a certain amount of distance, after being pummeled and hanging in the heat in that way, after allowing the swelling to occur, whatever hung there on the cross didn't look human. Internal, external damage. Jesus Christ went to the nth degree. And in doing so, he shall sprinkle many nations. What? That's a weird line. What do you mean sprinkle many nations? In the Old Testament, the way that they would purify things in the temple is that they would take ceremonially acceptable blood of an animal. They would then have what would we would deem like a paintbrush, stick it in the bowl, mix it around, and you would flick it on stuff. That is basically a symbol of covering the entire thing in blood. What that means is, symbolically, Jesus' blood spatter will sprinkle the nations and he will make many righteous. That is shocking to a Jew because we're not only talking about Israel, we're talking about nations outside of Israel. We're saying that it's going to flow through the Israel people out into the world to the pagans. That's a big deal. And kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told to them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. When Jesus is revealed for who he is, everybody will close their mouths. In stunned respect. Whenever I do ministry with somebody else, I, I never worry, are they always going to think I'm an idiot? Uh, now I'm quite convinced that they will think I'm an idiot in the short term. I'm all right with that. But long term, I am consistently sure and confident that someday they will know that I did not lie. They will know that as I preach the word of God, mostly only when I'm reading the word of God verbatim, do I have the confidence that they will know someday I was absolutely right. So every ministry that I do, I can do that with confidence of saying someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now some will say that in sorrow and some will say that in joy, but everyone will know who my Lord is. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Man, when he showed up, nobody had a clue who he was. He did not come in a packaging that we would appreciate. And here's the problem with all of that. It's still going on today. We would think that, man, those people just missed it all. But what were you expecting? If he would have showed up in your day and age, don't you imagine that if the Son of God shows up in the world, he should at least glow? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's got to be something, 
right? A heavenly barcode. There has to be something on the man that you're going to go, look, that's totally the son of God. Yet he came in completely under the radar. He came in through a woman as a baby, grows up in the quiet seclusion of a part of the country in a city that no one thought anything important would ever happen. He's born into quietness. He lived in quietness. We have 30 years of his life that only has two stories about it. Nobody expected that. Nobody wanted that. And when he finally shows up, he was too normal for them to appreciate. He, it wasn't that he was ugly. It's that he was extraordinarily average. And it talks about that. But here's what's intriguing to me. Let's say I prayed earlier about miracles happening in our presence. I believe miracles happen today. I believe they're going to ever increasingly occur in this congregation. I do not yet have the gift of healing. However, I pray for it consistently. And if the Holy Spirit bestows it upon me, you will know. Because I will tell you. But what's intriguing is, let me ask you, how is that supposed to go? Let's say you have back pain and you said, Pastor Lance, I'd like you to pray for me to heal my back pain. How does it have to look for you to believe it was actually from God and it didn't just happen to be the day that your back fixed itself? What are you going to expect? How do you want God to heal you so it's so dramatic you're going to get it? Because here's the problem. In the New Testament, Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Those were only the men. Therefore, we can kick up each one of them by two grand for women and children that may have been alongside. Therefore, we have 7,000 and 6,000 people that were fed with a happy meal. Right? Yet afterwards, the disciples didn't get it. Jesus records a story by saying, how is it possible that uh, you saw the little pieces I was working with? You were the ones that handed out the pieces to everybody. You realize that we gathered together 12 baskets full, seven baskets full. Afterwards, you can do the math. I understand you're stupid. You're not that stupid. We started with this, we ended with baskets, and everybody's satisfied, but they still didn't get it. It is shockingly amazing, our inability to track a miracle. So, how is God supposed to work in your life? Here's what I think is fascinating. So many of us spend our lives saying, God, where were you? And he's saying, where were I? Where was your head? I was with you. I was with you in the third grade when Johnny embarrassed you in front of everyone and you ran home and you hid in your closet. Guess where I was? I was in the closet. And you know what? I was there when you doubted me. I was there when you hated me. I was there when you ignored me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to work with you. I'm in the car with you. I'm constantly hounding you. I'm whispering you to you, but I'm not coming in a way that you want me to. And therefore you deem I do not exist. I will not try to earn anything with you. I will be consistently who I am. Sometime you're going to tune into me and sometime you won't. But you know what? I've never abandoned you. I've always been there. Why was he not seen? Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was just average. Bethlehem was not a fancy town. Nazareth was a despised town. And Jesus, though he had no form, I would say that his eyes probably contained his most magical look. I would suggest to you that for 12 men who do not like each other to hang together in a crew under one man, he must have had quite the charisma. But was his outward packaging all that? It was not. The first king of Israel was Saul and he was tall and everybody loved that. Quite frankly, I enjoy that myself. (laughs) Unfortunately, he wasn't the good one. The second one, the greatest king of Israel, was King David, and he was incredibly attractive, the Bible says. Jesus was neither one of those things, and yet was a better king than both. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why was Jesus sad? Because he saw how far we had fallen. You know, it'd be one thing if you just meet somebody in a bar one day... And you know they're messed up. I mean, you get that. But you can see kind of some of their good qualities. You look at them and you go, you know what? You're kind of funny. You know and I could actually hang with you. I mean, you're pretty toxic, so I have to kind of keep my distance. But in general, I mean, I can see some things in you. It's one thing for you to meet that person. It's another thing for their mom to see them. You understand what I'm talking about? Because the mom knows what they used to be. The mom knows what they are inside. The mom knows their potential. The mom knows everything that she had dreamed for them. All that was laid out for them. And they are so different from what they should be that it's heartbreaking. That's how Jesus walks through the world. He walks through the world and he looks around and he goes, this is not what I had in mind. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he began to weep. I always just wanted to protect you. I just wanted you to come to me. And you hate me and don't even understand me. That is maddening. It says, He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, truly in the deepest way, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. When Matthew quotes that Isaiah passage in the New Testament, he re-says it like this. He took our illnesses and bore our disease. What does that mean? It means any healing of any sort, whether it is on the surface or it is deep within, Jesus purchased it on the cross. It says that all that is wrong with us, all that is broken in us, all that is painful within us has been taken care of onto the heart of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Everybody looked at Jesus and when they finally saw him on the cross thought, man, if God doesn't like somebody, it's clearly you. Wow, your life went bad. I believe a couple days ago, everyone was singing Hosanna and throwing down palm branches. And now I've just heard the crowd shout crucify. And now everyone's making fun of you. They're hiding their kids' eyes from you. You are hanging between two criminals. You look like the absolute loser. We mock you freely. You do nothing about it. If God really didn't like somebody and gave them a bad deal, it was you. 
But he was pierced through. For what reason? For our transgressions. We define sin and what we do wrong in a lot of sweet ways. I know you do. That's how you keep doing it. How do I know that? Because that's what I do. If I really called sin what it was and faced sin what it was, I would probably stop doing it as much. But I always couch it in terms that are acceptable to me. I always have an excuse for it. I always have a reasoning for it. I always have a million ways that I can paint it. The Bible calls it a transgression. You know what that means? It means there was a line that God said, do not cross, and you walked across it on purpose. That's called a transgression. Jesus's beatings, Jesus's embarrassment, Jesus's mockery, Jesus's pain was all done, not because he was stricken by God, but because he didn't want us stricken by God. The absolute polar opposite of what had occurred. Everyone thought God didn't like him when in fact he was the epitome of the father's love. Intriguing is the phrase, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Why is that shocking? Because we're in 700 BC, talking to Jews, and two things haven't even occurred yet. Crucifixion is not a Jewish form of execution. It's a Roman form of execution, and the Romans aren't doing anything yet. They're not even on the map. So you're now describing a execution method of a people group that's not in charge not around and you're speaking to a group of jews about how you're going to crucify them in a totally different manner when they should have been stoned if they were jews well that's awfully specific 700 years before it happened he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed under the weight and under the judgment for our iniquities our sins Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds or in Hebrew in this passage, it's singular by the stripe. We are healed because of what he took on the cross, because of his pain that he bore. We have the possibility of healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. That means we are prone to wander and we're not very intelligent. We have turned everyone to our own way. Selfishness is our biggest problem. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to very quickly give you four things theologically that happen on the cross. Any one of them should rock your world. It starts like this. I'll do them very quickly. And I will post my notes as normal online in case you want to read these later. Uh, most scholars, not all, but most scholars will agree with this list of four. I stole it from somebody else, so don't give me any credit for it. Number one, Christ bought a substitution for sinners. He traded his life for ours. That much is known. And if he traded his life for ours, then we are no longer living out our existence. We are living out his existence. And that is a whole different ballgame. Number two. A redemption in relation to sin. Sinners were liberated, set free because the payment has been made in full. He paid it himself personally through his blood. One commentator said this, and it actually just shocked me. It was one of those light bulb moments. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world so that we might be free to renounce that freedom 
and turn to slavery to Christ. We don't just want to be free. We want to be his. Number three, reconciliation. A change of relationship between God and man went from hostility to harmony and peace. Peace was made when Christ paid the penalty and set things right on the cross. And we are changed into complete harmony with a righteous God because it was paid in full. Is that kind of important? Yeah, because you still think that you're struggling to get next to God. Not if Jesus paid it. Lastly, propitiation. You get extra credit if you can spell that right. Propitiation, it means that God's wrath, his anger and punishment, because he is justice personified, was turned away because finally an acceptable offering was given. On all who grace is bestowed, Christ was the offering. The other reason why that matters is because some of you think that God is still mad at you, but you're a Christian, you're a son and daughter of God, and you still think God is mad at you. God isn't mad at you. Jesus Christ either paid it or he didn't pay it. Will God discipline his children whom he loves? Yes, but please do not mix that with God is mad at you. Immature parents discipline out of anger. Mature parents discipline out of the best for the child. That's our God. What does this mean? It means that we now have freedom to be saved. It means that we can be justified. It means that we can be adopted into the family of God where new rules apply and our old family and old limitations drop away. Let's finish it out. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Now, this is totally sad because I'm an animal lover, right? Don't like this analogy. But the idea is that sheep, they're kind of clueless and they kind of just go with the flow. So it's kind of like the little lamb being led to the slaughter is like, hey, guys, bye. I'll see you in a second. I'm sure there's oats at the end. That's no idea, Right. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. The whole time he's in this unfair trial, the whole time everybody thinks wrongly about God, Jesus never tries to justify his honor. Come on, man. They're saying all these lies about you. At least say something so we know what the truth is. Jesus is like, this has never been about the truth, you guys. This whole monkey courtroom thing was never going to fly. It's merely a passage by which I'm going to get to the cross and I can protect my kids. So quite frankly, bring it. I don't care what they say. My father knows who I am. He's the only one I answer to. He's the only one I care about. So can we just get on with it? I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're saying lies. So what? Can we do the cross thing now? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. Hold up. That's specific. He was what? Made a grave with the wicked. He was hanged between two criminals. That's pretty specific. Why would the Messiah hang between two criminals? I don't know. Maybe prophecy. Then, instead of being thrown out into the field, 
left his body exposed to humiliate him, somehow a super rich guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea happened to know Pilate personally, gets the body and puts it into his personal tomb. That's very specific. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why would the father want to crush his son to save all his kids? He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. All those that believe in him and come to eternal life. He shall prolong his days as the eternal one. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand as he reigns as king. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I, meaning God, will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for those transgressors. I got hung up on one part of that line which was the father's going to give him rewards. What do you give a king that has everything? I mean, he's, he's glorified. He's raised back to the right hand of the father. All of creation bows down before him. What in the world can you give someone that has literally everything? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you this. What was purchased on the cross? What did the father orchestrate that the son could get back that the son actually wants? What's the only thing that the devil has that Jesus wants? Us. And there the father could sit at his throne and say, son, look who's coming through that door. And here we come streaming in like all his little kids. And he goes, there are my children right there. Amen. Amen. Jesus, that's all you've ever wanted. It's all we've ever wanted. We accomplished what we meant to do. And that is why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Listen. What Jesus has purchased is extraordinary. I guess the main question is, does it apply to you? I mean, that's it, right? You can have all the most amazing presents in the world on your floor, but if you don't open them, you have yet to engage with it at all. And therefore, it's kind of a waste. So I'm going to suggest this to you. If God was to send out an invitation to you, would you accept? If he was to tell you that he did that for you, would you say yes? If he asked you to walk in relationship to him, to restore that relationship with him, if he offered to walk you through the entire process and do all the heavy lifting and free you from your sin, would you say yes? Next week he does that. Following after this passage, we have one of the greatest invitations in the Old Testament to be saved. So here is my closing challenge to you. We're doing an altar call next week. And I want every one of the people that you love that do not know Jesus in this auditorium. Because we are going to talk about the gospel like we just did. We are going to talk about the incredible invitation that Jesus said, you guys, I did all of that for you specifically. I didn't do it just as a general demonstration. I did it as a specific demonstration. I love you so much that I will die for you. Please come to me and be restored. Let me heal you. If you know anyone that needs that message, 
That's what we're doing next week. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful day it is to walk with you. That, Lord, that we know that even though it's hot outside, that it is sweet within. Lord, that we know that you have done all that we need to have. That you are able to be greater than our sin, greater than our weakness. That, Lord, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Lord, would you allow our joy to be high today. That our love and gratitude for you would swell and excel today. That we might know that you are God and live as if it is so. Lord, guide us in our day-to-day activity. Draw us into prayer. Allow that restored relationship to grow in power and connection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.